0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part five in our series, Hearing God. Paul argues that disciples of Jesus should especially desire prophecy among all the things the Spirit does. So, what is it, and how does it work? I am one of the leaders here at Van City Church. We're in an ongoing series. All about the many ways that we hear from God. Now, after weeks of laying a foundation around the scriptures as what we believe are the primary way that we receive God's voice today, the plan is to spend the next few weeks, the next few Sundays, talking about the way that God speaks to the soul, or the way that God speaks through creation itself, or the way that God speaks through the church and through worship. But first, we are going to stop and talk about the way God speaks through the spiritual art of prophecy. We have a bunch of different recommended books at the back in the annex back there on our book table. We sell those all at cost. We don't profit at all. We just really believe in books. And this week, we finally got this thing in. This is a great book for families and kids called Listening for God, Silence Practice for a Little Ones." So if you want to go through some of what it means to hear from God with your small children, this is a great way to do that. All those books are back there and will be available after the gathering if you want to pick some of them up. Now, last week... We toured Paul's list in 1 Corinthians 12 of what are often called spiritual gifts, but we argue that they're better translated as simply stuff the Spirit does. And those are words of wisdom, words of knowledge, faith, healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, speaking in different kinds of tongues or languages, and the interpretation of those tongues and languages. And then, Two chapters later, we learned that there is one particular manifestation of the Holy Spirit on which Paul places a unique value. Are you guys all right? Yeah. Yep. You ready to do a little bit of work? You okay? Great. Thank you. Yeah, I was excited about the work. Yeah. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1 reads this way, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit or manifestations of the Spirit or the things that the Spirit does, especially, Paul says, prophecy. Now, in Greek, the single word translated here as eagerly desire is elsewhere translated as jealousy or to covet. Paul's instruction to disciples of Jesus is to eagerly desire or to covet, to yearn for, to want so bad the manifestation of the Holy Spirit known as Prophecy, more so, in fact, than all the other items on the list. Speaking in tongues or different languages, I know might be the weirdest item on the list for many of us today, but I think we can all agree that prophecy is also an idea with a lot of baggage. So, before we go any further, let me try to put some of you at ease. If I were to ask a room like this, what comes to mind when you hear the word prophecy? Just in any given context, my guess is that some of us can't help but think about predicting the future. And maybe you think of like Nostradamus or Soothsayers or the occasional rapture prediction that never pans out because here we are. But if I were to ask this room, do you believe that God speaks in one way or another to people today? My guess is that most of you would likely say, well, sure, it depends on what you mean, but yeah. Okay, great. Now, follow-up question. Do you believe that there are times in life When something about someone else or a particular situation weighs heavily on your heart or your mind to the degree that you feel the need to reach out to that person or people and say, listen, you were on my mind today and I wanted to tell you this thing I was thinking. Again, most of you, I'm guessing, would say, yeah, sure, that happens. If you put those two things together, I would argue that is what the authors of the scriptures call prophecy. This is something that God always intended for his people, and it's something that the people of God for centuries desperately wanted. Now, buckle up just for a bit. Go ahead and turn to the left in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, for the next few minutes, we're going to do a lot of Bible work, but we're going somewhere with the whole thing. We're on our way to John 1, where your bookmark will be, but I'm going to show you a a few things in the Hebrew Scriptures first. They'll be up here on the slides. You guys okay? You still with me? Great. Yeah, you'll be fine. So let's start with Moses. You heard of this guy? Moses. Early on in the story of the Bible, look at what happens in Numbers chapter 11. Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke with him, and he took some of the power of the Spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. When the Spirit rested on them, they... What? Prophesied, but did not do so again. However, two men, whose names were Eldad and Medad, had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish. All the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit on all of them. So all the way back in Numbers with Moses. Moses is aware of the Spirit's empowerment to prophesy. That much is clear. He sees it happen. But he laments that it is a rare and special manifestation rather than a common attribute distributed equally amongst all God's people at any given time. And then the story goes on. Later, the prophets amongst whom Isaiah is the first, they begin to look to the future's horizon and foretell of a day in which the Holy Spirit would step out of the background and into the light once and for all. And when that day would finally come, the prophets foresaw an entirely new reality for all of humanity, not just Israel. This is from Isaiah 44. He writes, Now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, this is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb and who will help you, do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Isaiah is looking to a day in the future when God's Spirit, like water, will be poured out over a thirsty desert, and that desert will be forever changed as a result. This idea of the Spirit as water permeates Isaiah's writing, and he's not the only one. Look at this from Joel chapter 2. He writes, And afterward, again in the future, I will pour out my Spirit on all people, again with the water. Worship rituals involving water were common in the ancient Near East for both Hebrews and pagans. They factored in a lot of different sacred ceremonies. Water would be kind of like poured out on an altar. That's the imagery that the writers of Scripture are capturing here. And the text goes on. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons, your daughters will, what? Prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out My spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. These passages from Isaiah and Joel really are just two among many that look forward to a day in the future in which God's spirit would be poured out like water in the desert. And all that eventually takes us, as all stories in the Bible do, to Jesus of Nazareth, which finally brings us to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Look down and read along, beginning with verse 29. So, John is retelling the story of Jesus' baptism. And in it, you know the imagery the Spirit comes down like a dove. If you've ever heard that story and wonder why the dove, let me show you something awesome. You're going to love this. In the first century, Most of Jesus' Hebrew peers spoke Aramaic rather than Hebrew, so naturally they needed translations from the Hebrew scriptures. Just like you and I, we need the Old Testament translated from Hebrew to English, and we need the New Testament translated from Greek to English, so we have the NIV or the ESV or what have you. But since many first century Jews needed translations from Hebrew to Aramaic, they used specific translations called targums. So when I read my Hebrew to English NIV Bible, it translates Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 like this. The earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. But one of the most popular Aramaic targums of Jesus' day translated that exact same verse like this. The Spirit flapped its wings over the water like a what? Dove. Dove. And this would have been the well-known way of reading Genesis 1 in in Jesus' day. And it seems to scholars that this is John's way of saying that in the same way that God's Spirit was over the waters in creation, he's now over Jesus, who is nothing short of a new creation, meaning the world is being recreated and made new in Jesus. It's, It's really too good. You can't make this stuff up. And John goes on in verse 33, I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. That word baptize is baptizo in Greek. It means exactly what you think it means, to immerse beneath water or to drench or to saturate. So John is saying that when Jesus comes, he will be the one to immerse his followers in the water that is the Holy Spirit capitalizing on all that imagery from the Hebrew Scriptures. And then John isn't finished with the spirit-as-water imagery. Turn over to chapter 4, and let's read part of the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. In the story, you guys are familiar with it. Jesus compares the water in this well where he and this woman are sitting. The kind of water in the well nourishes temporarily, and Jesus says that she should be pursuing a different kind of water. Look down at verse 13. Jesus said, Everyone who drinks this water, meaning the water in the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Now, interestingly, Jesus does not, at least here, detail what exactly this living water is. But then turn over just one more time to John chapter 7. Now, this last one comes with some backstory, so while you're on your way to John chapter 7, hear me out. The context here is that Jesus is in Jerusalem for something called the Feast of the Tabernacles, one amongst three really famous Jewish feasts. This one in particular, the Feast of Tabernacles, was a time for Israel to look back and remember part of the story from Exodus when, in Israel's long history, Jews lived in tents or tabernacles. So during the Feast of Tabernacles, Jews would flock to Jerusalem and they would kind of camp out for a week living in tents. And it was about... More than just remembering, it was also about looking to the future for a time when God would lead Israel in a second exodus, beginning something new and profound in the people of God and in the whole world. And then on the final day of the seven day Feast of Tabernacles, everyone, which would be thousands and thousands of people, would crowd into the city, and the high priest would begin this long walk setting out from the pool of Siloam at the bottom of the city, and he would take this bucket of gold. Dip it into water and then carry the bucket up the hill of Jerusalem with thousands of people on his right and his left as he passed. And all of them would sing from Isaiah 12 with joy you will draw waters from the wells of salvation. And this huge celebration culminated in the priest's arrival at the Temple Mount. And before the people, the priest would enter the temple, pour the bucket of gold and water out over the altar as this kind of reverent hush would fall over the crowd. All of this we know from rabbinic writings as a symbolic gesture of joyful anticipation for what Isaiah and Joel promised would one day finally happen. God's Spirit would be poured out like water. So there's an entire people watching and waiting and hoping for God's Spirit to arrive, just like Moses did, Isaiah did, Joel did, all the way up to Jesus of Nazareth. Now, all of that is the background to John chapter 7. Now, let's read beginning with verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival. So, during this huge, profound moment of observance and anticipation for Israel, story goes on, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow within them. And if all, all that is not clear enough, John adds, By this he meant the Spirit with whom, or whom those who believed in him would later receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. What was that strange living water that Jesus mentioned, the water that the woman at the well could not fully comprehend at the time, the, the thing long awaited by Moses, Isaiah, and all God's people for centuries and generations? It was the Holy Spirit. What Moses had longed for centuries prior had finally come to pass and even bigger than Moses had anticipated Jews and gentiles men and women young and old educated uneducated across the socio-economic spectrum all God's people can and will prophesy and remember these stories unfold in the ancient near east the, the metaphors of Isaiah are all set there. So this dry, hot world where prophets were looking to the future for a a, a huge work of God, the arrival of God's Spirit, they liken it to rivers of living water flowing through a once dry, desolate landscape so that trees and less vegetation would erupt from the cracked, sandy earth in a world where thirsty people would shuffle to local wells day in and day out just to temporarily relieve their ongoing thirst. If not for a moment, Jesus says, listen, I will give you water that will satisfy like no other water can come and drink. Now, prophecy is no longer a rare, unique phenomenon, but is, as promised, made available to all God's people. And now it is uniquely valuable among all the things that the Spirit does to the degree that we, as disciples of Jesus, should want, yearn for, covet, crave, prophecy. Okay, deep breath. That's the Bible background work. We've done all that just so we can finally ask this question. So how does prophecy work? By the time you get to the New Testament, And you actually read about Moses' hope and Joel's vision and Jeremiah's promise coming to pass with the early disciples of Jesus. Prophecy has already become something different than it was in the Old Testament. So, you know, just like the prophets foresaw, the voice of God is no longer this audible voice in a cloud or on a a mountain. It comes from within as images or impressions and sensations in the heart and minds of women and men which also means that now it's more subjective. If you hear God's audible voice on a mountain, what God is saying would be word-for-word evident because you would hear it with your ears and there you go. God yelled this stuff from the cloud and now we know exactly what he said. But if God's voice is being received and processed through the imperfect vessel of your thinking and feeling and then transmitted via imperfect communicators, well, then it's not always so clear, which is why... We believe there are three unique stages of a given prophecy. If you're taking notes, this is what they are. There's the revelation, the interpretation, and finally, the application. So you get something from the Spirit of God. That's the revelation, a word or a phrase, a passage from the Bible, an image. We'll get all, into all those in just a second. So you get revelation from God, and then you have to ask yourself, okay, what does this mean exactly? Sometimes it's not so clear. It begins with a word or a picture, and sometimes you need an interpretation. So you ask, and maybe you share with the community, who is it for? What does it mean? And then, when you have an interpretation, what do you do about it? What's the application? What should the person you tell do with it? If this sounds familiar, it's the exact same process we use to read and understand the scriptures. We read it, we interpret it, and then we apply it. And of course, We have to admit that both prophecy and the Scriptures can be and have been horrifically abused in this threefold process. God says something, you know, revelation through the Spirit or through the text, but then we either misinterpret it or we misapply it, and in that process, people can and often do get hurt, and both prophecy and the Bible subsequently get a bad rap. But that's not an inherent flaw or fault in the Scriptures themselves or in prophecy. It is in the way that we use and misuse either of them. Prophecy is good, which is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that we are to eagerly desire, covet, yearn for, want so bad the manifestation of the Spirit known as prophecy, even more than the other manifestations of the Spirit. And Paul teaches and assumes that this is something available to all disciples of Jesus not just a select few. Now of course there are people who are wired in such a way that it seems to come easier to them than to others or whose minds and personalities gravitate toward listening to God more than other people might by default. Just like there are some people who are more inclined to be outgoing or hospitable than others even though all disciples of Jesus are called to be outgoing and hospitable for the sake of the gospel. So You may think, man, it sure seems like this other person I know comes very naturally to prophecy, and there could be all sorts of reasons for that. There could be their wiring, their disposition, or it could be your overthinking or underthinking or a matter of confidence, lack of confidence, sin, shame, could be all sorts of things. In my years now of practicing prophecy with lots of trial and error, of course, I have become increasingly convinced that many of us make the stakes so high that accepting the simple whisper of God becomes an impossibility. We convince ourselves that the sky has to part and that we couldn't possibly trust our own imagination, that what came into our minds can't be God because it's too simple or it's too obvious or it's too weird, and we effectively ask God to kindly shut the heck up. You know, we're like, be quiet, God. I'm trying to hear from God. Um, (laughs) And I'm convinced that part of operating in the prophetic is learning to hold two truths in tension. The first is hearing from God is an incredible, undeserved, cosmic gift that should imbue us with awe and compel us to worship, a gift for which the people, have been, the people of God have been waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yes, that's true. But also, it's pretty simple. Paul writes, eagerly desire all the things the Spirit does, especially prophecy. If prophecy is so wildly complicated and unattainable, then Paul's not being very fair when he expects that any disciple of Jesus can do it. So we have to admit that the term and the idea of prophecy can be misunderstood, sure, So let's clarify. Here are a few brief definitions from different kinds of scholars across a few different traditions, theologians. I believe they put it pretty well and paint a pretty big picture. Prophecy is speaking what God spontaneously brings to mind. That's a simple one. Or how about this one? Prophecy is a spontaneous utterance prompted by the Spirit and based on a sudden and uncontrived revelation from God. Or here's a longer one. Prophecy is a phenomenon that results directly from the access the Holy Spirit has to our minds, whereby he can create pictures in our imaginations and supernatural dreams while we are asleep. He can put words, ideas, or pictures into our heads with such force that we know that there is something that carries with it the responsibility to pass on and relay what the Holy Spirit has communicated. In my experience, and in the experience of many smarter, more experienced, much wiser Christians that I know to talk about it, the words, ideas, or pictures that the the Spirit deposits into our minds typically come in a few trustworthy genres. Here's a short list, not exhaustive, but a, a broad strokes list. First, as Scripture, and this one is, to my estimation, regularly carried out by disciples of Jesus who might not even have any idea that they are prophesying. They'll say something like, oh man, this scripture was on my heart today. And and then they send an encouraging verse to someone or share a passage with someone. We would call that prophecy. One of our overseers, Eric Tabanowski, he does this all the time. He'll say, oh, that reminds me of this text. And then he'll quote from the scriptures in such a way that it brings encouragement and edification and wisdom. That's prophecy. So it could be a scripture. Or it might be a word like hope or stop. Or it might be a phrase like, I'll catch you or not yet or this will pass. All of these, by the way, are real examples of words and phrases spoken prophetically over me or that I've spoken over someone else. God's voice could also come as a picture or a short film that plays in your imagination. This for me has been the primary way that I've heard God speak at least to date it could also be what we might call a gut feeling or a, a sense it's not a word or a picture per se but this kind of heavy sensation that carries with it an idea it's like a, a feeling or an impression sometimes my wife abby will get this and she'll tell me things like i don't know exactly what it is but something is going on with this person or this situation and she's often very right it's it's prophetic it's a sense or it could even be a sensation in your body that corresponds with the healing work that God wants to do in someone else's body. Weird as that sounds, I've witnessed it and heard about it happening all the time. Um, one of our overseers left a story in my notes right here sharing this beautiful detailed story of waking up with a kind of pain in his shoulder and someone coming to him and speaking prophetically, hey, do you have pain in your shoulder? I think that this represents a seed of doubt planted in you by the enemy and there was praying and deliverance and healing. is a beautiful thing. So weird as it sounds, it happens. Someone feels a jolt, someone has a sense, and the spirit isn't about what's going on in their body per se, but it's about something that God wants to do, some kind of healing, restoring work that he wants to bring about by cluing someone in with a physical sensation. And then finally, it could be a dream or a vision. Uh, The difference is that when when you're dreaming, you're asleep. When it's a vision, you're awake. Uh, same kind of thing. So it could be a scripture, a word, a phrase, a picture, a short film, a gut sense, a dream, a vision. Not, again, not an exhaustive list. Song lyrics are another thing that are often on this list. It could be all kinds of things, but these are common ways that the Spirit tends to speak to God's people. So if those are the means by which God speaks, when God speaks, what kinds of things can you expect Him to say? Look one more time at 1 Corinthians 14 up here on the slide. Follow the way of love, eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in tongues does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their, please listen, strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, take that how you will, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, obviously, there's a whole lot there, but notice this in verse 3. If you're taking notes, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. That is what prophecy is for, meaning that is the way God talks to people. It doesn't mean that God will never correct you and, or never rebuke you or, re, or bring you into conviction. He will, believe me. But even a rebuke from God is for strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. He rebukes to save us from death, which is, by the way, the exact opposite technique of the enemy who rebukes to weaken, discourage, and condemn. The enemy rebukes to lead us to death. And that's how you know the difference. Prophecy is for strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Meaning, and it's funny that it took us so long to get here, but it means that prophecy is rarely about the future. And even when it is, it doesn't sound like a prediction from Nostradamus. It sounds like preparation for the possibilities before you so later in 1 corinthians paul writes tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers prophecy however is not for unbelievers but for believers so if the whole church comes together and speaks in tongues and the inquirers and inquirers or unbelievers come in will they not say that you are out of your mind but if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying they're convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Oh my God, Paul's vision is of a church where everyone is prophesying, and he says that when that happens, even an outsider, even a bystander, will exclaim, God is here in this church. Prophecy is apparently how pagans and naysayers will know that God is real and present amongst his people. And Paul wants it so badly that he goes on to outline all kinds of parameters, instructions for allowing and encouraging all kinds of prophecy in the church gathering, how to do it in an orderly way so it doesn't become a chaotic free-for-all. And he concludes all of it in verse 39 by saying, therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Meaning, sure, be organized, yes, do it well, don't get too weird, but be eager to prophesy. Create space to listen. We do that every single Sunday. Our leaders do this as we plan for the gathering on Sunday afternoon, and when we meet to plan and cast vision for our church every month. The Van City Prayer Cohort that just formed is meeting the first Sunday of every month to do this at length together. As leaders, we remind one another to keep listening throughout the gathering, and when we convene, During a time of listening, to share any sense of what that we have of what God is up to, we do that during the gathering as worship begins again here in a minute. Someone will often say, "Hey, this came to me during worship, or I got this sense while you were teaching." Meaning, we listen, we see what comes to mind, we ask for clarity, we ask for an application. Who is this for? Is it for me? Is it for the church? Is it for my community? And when? Is it for now? Is it for later? We ask, listen, and then act. We deliver the message and. Please listen, when you do deliver any sense you have of what God might be saying to a person or to people, never say, please, as a favor to me, never say point blank, God said. Trust me, it's just better for everyone if you don't. Instead, lead with something like, I have a sense, or say something like, could be from God's spirit, but test it. That's scripturally accurate, by the way. You don't need to like, pour cold water all over it by saying over and over again how unsure you are. I think this could be what God is saying, but please don't listen to me because I don't know anything. Don't, don't have to do all that. You just saying, I think this could be what God is saying is plenty. Say it with humility, but you can say it with courage. Be willing to be wrong. Be willing to be off. No one dies I've heard and shared and witnessed at this point hundreds of prophetic words over the years. I have never seen anyone die. In fact, I have seen people be very wrong, and ultimately, everything was just fine. What's the difference between being off about what you hear from God and doing significant, irreparable damage, and being off about what you hear from God and everyone being totally fine? Humility is the difference. Balance being actually kind when you talk to people about what you think God is saying. So say it with love, never with anger, never with pride, never with a sense of superiority or condemnation. Remember, prophecy is for strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. But you do have to say it. Look at it this way. If you take a step and you risk feeling foolish and that, that has happened to me many, many times where I say, oh, I get a sense of this. And sometimes it's hyper-specific and the person's like, nope, not me at all. Oh, okay. Well, let's try again. You go out on a limb. You, you do the best you can with humility and grace. Worst case scenario, you were just off. No big deal. It happens to everyone who has ever attempted to prophesy besides Jesus. But if you don't take that risk and you don't speak up, then you can silence the voice of God in someone else's life. Which thing is more costly? Ask yourself which thing is more valuable to you, preserving your own sense of comfort and pride or someone else hearing the word of God in their life. This is, I believe, quite frankly, more than just some kind of optional peripheral thing reserved for only a select super or few super-Christians. If we fail to take prophecy seriously, then we can, in Paul's language, quench the Spirit of God. He writes in another one of his letters, do not quench the Spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but yes, test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. This imagery is of the Spirit's work as like a blazing fire And the skeptic or the cynic who roll their eyes at a possible word from God, who allow a weird past experience to rob them of the good that God wants to say and do in and through them by the Spirit, that person, too afraid to bruise their pride or risk embarrassment, they quench that fire. They douse douse it with cold water. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we should just accept anything and everything that someone purports to be from God. Look at what Paul writes, test them all. It could be outright wrong. It could be partly off, but not all the way. It could be incomplete. So you test them. And the testing phase is not as complicated as it it may seem. There are some pretty basic criteria we use to screen a potential word from God. The first one is the starting point. Is it in keeping with the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus? If not, it isn't from God. An alleged prophecy that sounds like, yeah, I know what the Bible says, And I know that the Bible says this is wrong, but I just feel like God says it's okay because he wants me to be happy. Nope, not from God, not prophetic. Next, is it for strengthening, encouragement, and comfort, even if it is a rebuke? And finally, does it confirm what God has already been saying and doing in your own life and community? Meaning, if you have been prayerfully submitted to God's direction in your life, If you've been seeking his voice, if you've been opening yourself to the accountability of community, and all of that seems to confirm a certain direction, and then someone comes along and says, well, actually, I just heard God say the exact opposite. You need to test that. A prophetic word can feel out of left field, especially if you're not seeking God's voice or if you're in sin, it might feel as if it's the last thing you expected to hear, But often, if you are centering yourself in God's direction and will and submitted to the accountability of the community, and God has already begun a word in the Spirit in your life, and then He will continue to say it again and again through other people in different ways. So again, those are the kinds of things the Spirit of God does in and through all disciples of Jesus. When the world talks about being like Jesus, we say it all the time. We say it here almost every single week. The things that immediately come to mind for many are things like kindness and compassion or or maybe social justice. And those are all aspects of Jesus' life and lifestyle, things that we should be pursuing to emulate to be like Jesus. But the interesting thing is, is that if you read the Gospels, the majority of Jesus' work was healing the sick, casting out demons, prophesying, and preaching the gospel. I'm not making that up, by the way. It's not like my weird opinion. Read the four gospels and start a tally if you want to prove it to yourself. If we want to grow into the kinds of people who are able to do the kinds of things that Jesus did, then that list will involve things like healing the sick, casting out demons, prophesying, preaching the gospel, not just being nice and doing social justice. Not less than that, but also more. Frank Viola says it like this, Evil spirits desire to inhabit bodies because they crave expression. That's the whole point of possession. They seek to take over a human body so that they can express themselves through it, employing it for wicked purposes on the earth. Jesus Christ is now in the spirit and he also craves expression. He seeks to make his life visible through a many-membered being. The body of Christ, the church, exists to express God in the earth. Are you entirely satisfied with the routine of sermons and songs and Bible studies, all wonderful, beautiful, even crucial things. But do you also crave the voice of God written on your heart and and blossoming in your mind, the beautiful and wild empowerment of God's Spirit over your life as a student or an engineer or a parent or an artist or a friend, whatever, in all that god has for you and your family and your community intimacy with god to the degree that you regularly hear his voice in your own heart and mind and through the community of god's people that is what i want i know i can't be alone in wanting more than just sermons and songs Wanting the kind of intimacy with God that is able to know and hear His voice and to see what we would call miracles and to eagerly desire all the things that the Spirit does, especially prophecy. And if that list is truly open to all disciples of Jesus, and I believe it is, then I want everything on that list. I do not care how weird it is to me or to us. I want that for our church. To end, here are my two humble request for those of you well-versed in prophecy, to the curious, to the skeptics, to the doubters, to those brand new to the idea at all. First, give God permission to talk to you. Now, to be clear, God doesn't need your permission to speak. Both the Bible and church history are really replete with stories of people experiencing the voice of God in power when they weren't expecting it or didn't ask Him to say anything at all. So what I mean by give God permission to talk to you is make space and suspend disbelief. And I don't just mean make space in your morning quiet time or you know in some hyper-spiritual moment of worship on Sunday night. Those are great. God can and will speak through those times. But I also mean every day throughout the day, ask God stuff and allow yourself to bring God to your mind, to think about Him. And when you do, except that he might want to do more than just be thoughtfully considered. He wants to talk to you. And don't assume that God only talks in total silence after you've asked a specific question and squinted your eyes shut over a Bible. He can speak when you just bring him to mind as you drive or wash dishes or walk outside to get the mail. So give God permission to talk. And then secondly, give yourself permission to hear him. Again, I am absolutely convinced that many of us are already hearing from God, have heard from God, but that we simply will not allow ourselves to accept this is happening because it seems unspectacular or because we silence his voice with our own inner critic or because we are so painfully wary of the way God has been misrepresented by those claiming to have heard from him that we create an impossible standard of certainty that we will never actually have. We have to learn to train ourselves as we listen to maintain a default disposition of expectancy rather than skepticism. When we listen, we should expect that God will speak and that what comes to us as we listen might be Him. Now, please listen to me. I promise that you can do this without succumbing to sensationalism without creating some disaster by getting it wrong once in a while. The real disaster is missing what God has to say over your life or over someone else's life through you. The real danger for most of us is not creating hysterical, charismatic hype. The danger is being spiritually infirmed by talking ourselves out of God's voice and succumbing to our default naturalistic worldview that says... God doesn't really talk to people. That's crazy. That's just your own head. What's crazy is having access to God's voice and ignoring it. You do not need a perfect quiet space beholding a sunrise. You don't need the world's most specific word of knowledge from stage on a Sunday night. You don't need the audible voice of God to call you by your first, second, and last name. Those things are great, but so is the car ride home from work. So is waiting in line at the grocery checkout. So is that internal glimmer of joy when you play with your kids or laugh with a good friend. You don't need an incantation to conjure the voice of God. Lengthy prayer sessions and petitions are wonderful, and you should have them. But often, all you need is a single word, Father. Often, all you need is the ancient invitation prayed by Christians all over the world for centuries, Holy Spirit, come. And then... In the moments that follow, give yourself permission to consider that what comes into your imagination, your thinking, your feeling, that it's from God. Maybe you're wrong, sure, but if you carry yourself with humility and kindness, who cares? Anyone who practices anything makes mistakes from time to time and practices the only way that we learn. I would rather get nine prophetic words wrong just to get one right than to not hear from God at all. My son Arlo is one and a half, and you might not know this about uh, him because he is really rude to you guys every single Sunday night. Anytime anyone approaches him, he goes, no, like that, no, unless it's Tiffany, and then he's extremely excited. But Anyway, uh, he really talks all the time, and most of his words are half right at best, and some of them aren't even close. Even today, for a long time, I was like, I'm sorry, man. I just don't know. He kept saying some word. Like, I don't have that one. I don't know what you mean. And for some reason, he has always referred to food as minah. No idea. He very clearly means food, and he uses that word consistently, unfailing, as a surrogate for food. So we use it too, like it's just the normal word for food. You, you want some mine? Oh, is that good Mina? You like that mina? All that stuff. And, you know, eventually he'll learn to say food. We realize this. We're in no hurry. In fact, part of me will be sad to see mine go. Uh, or, or my daughter, Isla. Those of you who have been here for serving with Van City Kids for a while, maybe you remember that there were a couple of years during which all of Isla's R's were W's. Uh, here's a great example. This cracks me up. it's serious jesus never lets any people down he makes people better when they get hurt and when jesus makes the world better everyone will be not uh, not not sick or dead anymore yeah she's actually right very theologically astute at a young age but Obviously, we figured that she would get her R's at some point. And there were friends, that well-meaning friends, were like, oh, man, should she you know, like work on that? And we're like, she'll get them at some point. Now, of course, as her dad, I want her to grow in her ability to communicate appropriately. But that time of her getting it wrong was an important part of her learning, and I was grateful to hear it, and she didn't hold back. And, and Arlo feels no embarrassment about saying, my nah, for all he knows, that's the real word. So when I enter into the sacred place of listening, whether it's you know, watching a sunrise in silence or just sitting at the red light for 30 seconds, I want to actually go for it. I might be missing the R's, I might be calling food, my nah, I don't know. The whole thing. I'm just going to go for it anyway. It's probably not right all the time, but God knows that I'm trying to listen and trying to share what I think he might be saying to other people. So go out on a limb. Take that little glimpse that you get and grab onto it and just go for it. The image that flickers in your mind, the phrase that whispers, that strange nagging sense. Don't talk yourself out of it. Just take a risk. Go. No one dies. You can do it. Don't let it vanish without a trace. Don't talk yourself out of it. Take it. Say, okay, God, I could be wrong, but I think this is it. And then let him show up even in your mistakes. Believe me, he's not so bad at translating the missing R's and the mine ours. So give him a chance to talk to you and through you. Listen, grab hold, and then speak up. So let me pray and ask God's Spirit to speak and empower us to speak on his behalf. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancitychurch. You can support Van City financially at vancitychurch/give.